Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This morning we are continuing our series on BLESS, where we are seeking to to partner with God in God's master plan of transforming this world. And that's through the power of blessing. And so uh, this week, some of you might really love the call to response, the, the practical application, because this week we're talking about eating together. And some of you go, I couldn't, I'm not into listening, I'd rather not pray, I can eat. So this is your week for those of you people. You can actually tell a lot about a people, about a culture, by how they eat. Think about that. In all the different parts of the world, different times, you can tell a lot about a society by how they eat. And uh, it makes me wonder, what might you tell about us and our society? Around 30 years ago, New York Times did a, had an article about a growing trend around food in America. And that growing trend is that people were eating, starting to eat by themselves. 30 years later, and I'm going to throw some stats at you just to kind of paint a picture. 30 years later, nearly half of all meals are in, in America are eaten alone. Nearly half of all meals are done alone. Uh, and I remember in college how awkward I felt eating alone in the cafeteria, like how awkward I felt. I could never even think about going into a restaurant and eating alone, but that's actually become somewhat normative. And I think part of the reason why is what do we do when we sit down at the table and we eat by ourselves? Get our phone out, right? And we eat so that we're not just awkwardly alone. We're connected to other people even though we're alone. Uh, and some, some more things that we found out of our, our society. In 2012, a survey found that 65% of working Americans either eat lunch at their desk or not at all. A majority of working Americans are either eating lunch at their desk or not at all. They're not eating with people. They're not having a sense of community during that meal. From the Atlantic, we find that Americans eat one in five meals in the car. Uh, on the way to somewhere. It's just kind of like food is just a, just a necessary thing so that we can be able to live our life. Uh, and this is another thing I found interesting when you think about the, the family. A majority of family, American families report eating less than five meals together a week. Now, what this is saying to us is that we have, have pulled away from a practice that held our society together, the fact that we used to stop pause and eat together. And the interesting thing is, so that's what, what's happened in America, but when you think about Austin, Austin's weird, right? And so what trends do we see in Austin? Well, 
I think with any major trend, there's always a counter trend. It's like the pendulum's going to swing this way. There's going to be an opposite trend the other direction. Around five years ago, I started noticing something weird about Austin. And it's about not people who try to fly through meals, people who eat alone, but they do the opposite. And what are those people called? Foodies. These are people who obsess over food. It's like before you can eat, you have to document it with a picture, right? And then finally you can eat. And we, I love this right here. I, um, Instagram is down, just describe your lunch to me. Like, I, what, what's, what are you eating right now? Uh, we obsess over food in this culture. And like the small plate phenomenon, where you go to a restaurant and you order a bunch of small plates for you and your friends to eat, and they're all shareable, but they're all so small in portions, you should have like 10 plates just to fill yourself up. And don't worry, it's all like bizarre type food that you've never heard of. And even then, it's like, it's like locally sourced, non-GMO. Is it organic? Yes, it's organic. Is it free range? Of course it's free range. Is it cage free? Of course it's cage free. You know, it's like we obsess over our food. And so you sit down and you have this meal that takes forever and it takes up your whole paycheck. Yet somehow we're like, oh, this is so good. Now on the way home, can we stop at P. Terry so I can actually get full, you know? <laughs> that counter trend is actually saying something to me. What it's saying to me is that we have a longing for the table to be more than just means to an end. Like we actually have a longing for the fact that we could sit at a table and have friendship and warmth, share stories, be able to have this experience together and share something in common. This desire is something that happened in Jesus' day, and he masterfully used it to share the gospel. Some of the best work that Jesus ever did was at the table. He chose to use the table. So when I jokingly say this week, some of you are going to like it because we're going to talk about eating together, that wasn't something that was just humorous for Jesus. There was something significant about it. And it was because in Jesus' day, the table was used for something different as well. In Jesus' day, the table had, had a couple different uses. One of the uses uh, for the table was that it, uh, it was a place where people knew their social status, and so for, in Jesus' day, people would, when a big meal would happen, the word would go out and the whole community knew about it. And there was different, like, different statuses that people were allowed to be on. There was the commoner status, which is everyone could come in and kind of be in the courtyard of wherever this meal was and kind of peek in and maybe, maybe, maybe grab a bite or something like that. But you actually weren't allowed to be inside the house. But if you were invited to be inside the house, that's like the next level of status, and you're able to be there, you're able to see and hear the conversations more clearly. But then there was the seats of honor. And you'll, you'll hear Jesus talk about the seats of honor. He talks about the seats of honor with his disciples. Don't, don't fight after those seats. Don't, don't go after those seats. And so in Jesus' day, you knew where you were in that society by where you were during that meal. But it was more than just used for social status. It was also used for religious status. You couldn't sit down and have a meal with someone who was a practicing uh, part of the, of the Jewish community if you were considered unclean. There was this whole practice where you would have to clean yourself 
before you could sit down and have fellowship, before you could have the shared meal. There was, very, was a meticulous process. You have to wash your hands. All the serving dishes, all the utensils had to be cleaned. And it was more than just being sanitary. It was about a religious cleansing. And if you were to think about that, think about what that means. And we, some of us think that we have to do this with church as well. Before I enter into this place, I have to make sure that I'm clean. And so for Jesus, uh, his day, he saw these two different practices. And by the way, the religious status, the church, some of the, the, some of the earliest fights were about this. Can we still eat with people who are unclean? And Jesus gave his followers and us a different way of being. Jesus took the table and used it for something more than just social status, more than just religious status. Jesus used the table to teach people about the power of grace. That's, that was Jesus' use of the table. And so we see this perfectly in a story about a, a man named Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus encountered this man named Matthew in verse 9, it says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, this is really important. This gets lost on us. So Matthew is a tax collector. Who cares? So what? For Jesus' day, that was really meaningful. Uh, tax collectors were some of the most despised, detestable people in their society. And the reason why is that Rome took over Israel, and Rome wanted their tax money. But rather than send in a Roman to go in from the outside and collect money from the different people and vendors and businesses, they decided, what if someone could do it from the inside? Someone who knows the society. Someone who knows who's, who's making money and who's not. And so they found maybe one Jewish man in a community who might be tempted by the lure of making a lot of money. And the reason why is that Rome said, okay, we need our tax money, but I tell you what, you can add a little bit more, you can take that cut yourself. And so it played on people's greed. And so these tax collectors, they chose their greed, but it came with a great cost because then they were outcasts. They were despised. They were hated. They were treated like Gentiles, which means they were, they were not considered a part of the Jewish community anymore. And that had real implications. And so Jesus comes up to Matthew. He's sitting at the tax collector's booth, and Jesus says something profound to him. Follow me. That's all it took. Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And then Matthew got up, and he followed him. What's, what's powerful about this, when I think about this, it's just... That seems like a really dramatic response by Matthew, but there's something to it. By Jesus' first words, notice his first words weren't, Matthew, you need to repent. Matthew, shame on you. Shame on you for turning against your people. How dare you? How's, how's that bank account doing? No, instead, Jesus looks at him and says, I want you to follow me. And I wonder if the way Matthew heard it was, Matthew, I choose you. I want you, I, want you to, I want you to know me. I want you to be with me. I want to know you. I want you to follow me. And at that simple, gracious invitation, Matthew left it all behind. I love thinking about the money that was on the table. And Matthew just getting up from his table and walking and following Jesus. 
Now, where this gets beautiful is where is the first place that Jesus, where Jesus leads Matthew? Was it to the synagogue to clean up himself? Was it, I want you to take all the money, we're going to go and divvy it out? Notice where Jesus sends Matthew, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. The first place that Jesus takes Matthew from a tax collector's table was to his table was to Matthew's table, that Jesus actually wanted to enter in even deeper, that Jesus said, I want to go into your world, not only for you, but I want you to gather your community. And so notice who's there at Matthew's house. Well, his crew, everyone else who wasn't a part of the community, all the misfits, all those who were kicked out, that is who Matthew was being with. And so Matthew gathered, to, he, just like he usually did, all the tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples. What I love about this is it's one thing for Jesus to be in relationship with Matthew who left the, the tax collector's booth behind, but it's something altogether for Jesus to enter into friendship with people who have not even repented. These people who are considered the, the dirtiest, the most detestable, Jesus sits down and has friendship with them. And this, this, for their day and age, for us, we might read this and go, so who cares? We all have to eat. This, for Jesus' day and age, was profound and shocking because Jesus flipped the whole thing upside down. This seems to be the approach that Jesus had in his life and his ministry. He would move people through a process where first they would belong, then maybe they would believe, and then after that they would become. What I mean by this is Jesus led with, with friendship. Jesus led with drawing people in, just hearing the words of saying, I accept you, I know you, I receive you. And then after that, along the way, they would start believing. After experiencing mercy and grace, they would go, oh, so this is what it's about. And then the scales from their eyes would fall away. Their heart would become tender and they would start believing. And then eventually, after a long time, they would be transformed. And think about this, for the disciples, was it immediate? No, it even took Jesus' death and resurrection for them to truly become. And the reason why this is so shocking is that this threatened religion's process because it was the opposite. Because the religion's approach is become, believe, then belong. What that means is if you want to belong with us, if you want to be one of us, first you need to start looking like us, acting like us, talking like us. You need to start being like us. And then, after a while, then you might learn to believe what we believe. You'll learn how to copy and paste our statements of faith. You'll start learning how to say the theological, profound words that we believe. And then, so then you can learn to believe. And then maybe, if you've proven it enough, then you'll belong. And you see how the way of religion and the way of Jesus are not similar. They're two opposite things that threaten one another. A very easy way to say this is that you can say of religion and of Jesus 
that the gospel is humani- humanity's, uh, sorry, this is backwards. It's super helpful. <laughs> Religion is humanity's pursuit of God. It's our striving to be with God. And the gospel is God's pursuit of us. The gospel is how wild the love of Jesus, who doesn't have a barrier, who knows no end, who doesn't cease, how extremely powerful the love of God that eventually will win us over. You see how the gospel and religion are so different. And so for Jesus, he was living this out. And like I just said, the gospel threatens the power of religion. If you can belong without believing or becoming, then how is it to say that not everyone will say they belong? And Jesus, that's his approach, to enter first into friendship. So they felt threatened by this in verse 11. You see what the Pharisees will do. In verse 11, they come to Jesus and they say, how is it, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We see that Jesus masterfully used the table to do exactly what it was being used to do in his day and age, to show religious and social status, but it was the opposite. Jesus was showing that the religious status of the table is it's meant for all. The social status was, I'm going after the least likely. Those who feel like they are kicked out of every religious circle, those are the social people I want to draw into relationship with me. We see this. In verse 12, Jesus has a great response to this. In verse 12, I have not come for the healthy, but the sick. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, the religious, the the righteous to congratulate them. Well done. You guys have done a great job, super religious. Now you've earned my blessing. Here's some, I'm gonna give you my blessing. I'm gonna give you a safe life. I'm gonna give you prosperity because you've earned it. You deserve it. That wasn't Jesus' approach. Instead, Jesus says, I have come for the sick. And the Pharisees go, well, you didn't come for me. I'm not sick. And Jesus might look at them and go, exactly. The reality is all of us are sick. We all have a huge problem and that only the grace and love of Christ can solve. And a great indication if we're ready to receive this gospel, is by your appetite for the grace of God. You're longing for the grace of God. How desperate are you for the love and the mercy of God? Undeserved. That is a good sign if you are receiving the gospel. Dallas Willard, he's a great thinker, author, and he... uh, He said this beautiful, uh, shared this beautiful thought in one of his books. He shared that perhaps the greatest saints of this world aren't those who are perfect. Perhaps the greatest saints of this world aren't those who are righteous and can do it on their own. Perhaps the greatest saints of this world are those people who consume grace all the time. They breathe in grace into their life like it is air. They have grown used to accepting and receiving and taking grace in. Those might be the true saints. And Jesus here going for those people who have 
a vacuum in their life that grace fills. And so we see how Jesus, he threatened the power of religion. He threatened the power of religion and only grace could solve it. Only grace could bring it about. For me, I had an experience of this once. I, some two of my friends, a guy named Kyle and Luke, we decided to have a road trip. We flew up to California. We went up to the northern coast of California, and it was the most romantic trip for, for three married guys. We stayed in cottages and B&Bs all the way up through the wine country, and we, it was so funny. We were sending pictures to our wives. They're going, can we come on this sometime? We ended up all the way to Portland, and if there's another city that's as weird in this, in this country, it's Portland. Portland's a bizarre place. It's like Austin times two. It's just more funky, more fixed bikes, more weirdness. And so one of the things that we did is we heard about this place called the Kennedy School, and if you ever go to Portland, I really recommend that. The Kennedy School is, imagine an elementary school. Uh, Ms. Shannon, you'll love this. Imagine an elementary school that's like an old school elementary school, and a brewery purchased it. A brewery purchased it. It was abandoned. They bought it, and they kept everything the same. So you walk into this elementary school, and there's lockers around there, cork boards, and you look into the principal's office, and it's a smoke room. You go into the counselor's office, and there's spas and jacuzzis there. The classrooms are like hotel rooms. You stay there. The courtyard is this, this, awesome, this awesome restaurant. You go into the gym, and that's where they have movies and concerts. We go there this one night, and it's a concert. And just like it would be in Portland, it was an accordion festival. (laughs) And I might think, oh, this is really strange who would be there. You walk in there, and it was like a group of misfits. We got hippie people, young hipsters who love how just no one else likes this, so I'm going to like it, you know? You have people who might actually love the accordion. And so it's just this ragtag group of people, and it's all these young people who are playing accordion, and they're doing a lot of covers and that kind of thing. It's just the most bizarre experience, so we just enter right into it. And uh, this one guy, he's, uh, he's playing, and it just comes across as hard. And I can't remember if he said his father was a pastor, or somewhere in there he... In, the, in between songs, it was just a really, it was a real moment. But in between songs, he starts talking about how he grew up in the church and he realized he didn't belong and he left his whole faith behind. But there's one person he still thinks about all the time and it was Judas. And he was thinking about, in his own life, Judas is his hero because at least Judas was honest. And then he started talking about with Judas what he's actually come to believe is that Judas is the patron saint of sinners. And everyone raised their glass and they celebrated it. And for me, I just wanted to go, oh, that's Jesus. If there's anyone who's the patron saint of sinners, it's Jesus. That Jesus is actually for this ragtag, misfit crew of people. They're longing for Jesus who receives us in our honesty and our mess and our brokenness and enters into friendship with us. I just wanted this community of people to know that. And so for us, we have to consider how our lives are displaying the same message that Jesus had, that we first enter into friendship so that people might be able to consume and experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus so that they might believe and then become who they were always intended to be. 
This is how Jesus lived his life. And I just wanted, there's this a beautiful verse that Jesus shares to these Pharisees, Matthew 9, 13. He looks at them and he quotes from Hosea. Too much to go into right now, but Hosea is a story about undeserved grace. Jesus quotes from Hosea saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We think that what God wants from us is our holiness, our A-plus religious performance, us knocking out everything to do, us being better than our neighbor. And Jesus is coming to him and saying, I don't want your sacrifices more than what I want for you is mercy. I want you to experience mercy. And I have a feeling the tax collectors and the sinners, they experienced mercy mercy while the Pharisees wanted to offer up their great sacrifices. Jesus used the table to drive in this point. And I don't think Jesus is done. I think God is still calling us to partner with God in using tables to be places of grace. I want to invite my friend James to come up here to share a demonstration of this, how tables can be used of grace uh, James is not a part of our community, although many of you might know of James and his wife, uh, uh, Sa- uh, Sally. And Sandy. Sandy, so close. <laughs> Sorry about that. I near fatally made a similar mistake one day. Yeah, good, it's good. near fatal. So uh, Sandy and uh, James, they own a coffee shop called Stout House, which is right around the corner from here. We've developed a friendship. And... Uh, before, before owning Stout House, what were you up to? What were you doing? Uh, what was I up to? Uh, first, Sandy, would you please stand up? This is my wife, uh, Sandy. We've uh, been married just over 23 years. We have two daughters, uh, 20 and 17. And, and I have to remember to always start any, any part of my story with yeah. uh, the most important blessings in my life. So I was up to that. I was up to being married and uh, happily married, and, and that's a lot of hard work, as many of you know. Uh, but um, before we began our, our coffee shop, uh, I was in professional, I guess you'd say professional ministry. I was a, a pastor of the arts at a church in South Austin um, in the Oak Hill area that Sandy and I helped uh, plant in 1997. So we've been where you are. We've been in the schools and smaller schools and bigger schools and setting up and tearing down and appreciate volunteers that helped make this place beautiful. Um, so thank you guys. Uh, and that was what we did. Um, I pastored artists and uh, on Sunday that looked like being the worship leader, but throughout the week it was the programming and, and anyone that would, would give their time as an artist uh, to serve the church and to create these beautiful environments uh, was my role for 15 years. So you were in the church world, spending your time, your occupation, your vocation there in church. How did you switch over from that to Stout House? Uh, uh, Probably uh, a one-minute answer. (laughs) I lost my identity in that, that no matter what I was doing professionally, as a vocation, I was still a child of God. And it, there was a time that I was sensing my uh, time on staff at a church was ending. Um, didn't ever think that would happen. 
but as uh, there's a strange thing that happens in you when God is giving you a direction. Uh, there, in, the, in the chaos and confusion, there's, there's, a, there's a strange peace and joy about the unknown. And so as we begin to pray about that transition and what that would be, we had always kind of had a romantic dream of one day when we retire from ministry, when we're older, um, uh, to have a coffee shop. And, what, and, the, and the reason is, is, everything you're saying here today, oh, look, there's a picture. Where did you harvest that? Don't worry about okay, it. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, public domain. Um, uh, so um, what we loved about uh, coffee, I grew up drinking coffee with my grandmother when I was four. And what that meant for me was... It doesn't stunt your growth at all. It doesn't, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> you were four as well. Yeah, okay. I was pounding it. I was pounding yeah. it. <laughs> Double-fisted. All right. Uh, yeah, so uh, from the, my earliest memories, it was, around, it was about community. It was about loved ones and playing rummy with her and drinking coffee and watching David Letterman, you know, and just these things that, that bring us together. And, and our, as we grew, we found ourselves often, Austin is so great with local, right? There's so, many, there's so much good food and drink here, and we were always there. And because of our nature of being kind of entrepreneurial in spirit, you know, when we planted a church and we always want to initiate things, we found ourselves like loving Austin, but like why are we just consuming these great environments that other people have created for us. Maybe God's calling us to, to be curators of these environments and to build one. And so, uh, you know, we talked about that for 10 years. So when I was transitioning, um, we had a decision to make. I voluntarily quit my job. And that's, you don't really, with nothing promised ahead of me, not even a coffee shop. So that's how crazy we are when God says go. We, we make life changes. Um, and then we get afraid, like Peter did when he got off the boat. Um, so we did, and we, we knew that I was either going to have to become a developer, a programmer again, like I used to do, or we were going to open our coffee shop. But we knew the first step was uh, to get on this, this road uh, that had no known outcome to us, only to the Lord. So the reason why I thought of bringing James and Sandy here is that the way they use their, their coffee shop is not like a normal person, not like a normal experience. You can tell they're leading with, with relationship. You've talked about it, how this coffee shop is an extension of your living room. Right. So uh, in the background, you see a word, and I think the next slide has that. Would you share what that word stomtisch means? Stomtisch, yeah. Uh, I grew up in Germany uh, for a while. My dad was in the Air Force, and... Uh, this is a German word that, that loosely means a place where regulars gather. Um, you'll see this in German pubs quite often. It's either a sign on a table or it's hanging over a certain section. And honestly, my dad was bugging me when we were building out the shop. Hey, am I going to get my, my own table, my own stomptisch? And I was like, Dad, no. Um, every, and I said, all right, to, to kind of stick it to the man, I said, I just painted it on the wall. I said, everybody is part of the Stomptisch Dad. Uh, so you can have any table in here, but it, it really captures uh, what we set out to create. Uh, the extension of our living room means that our staff, uh, when you invite people into your home, then everyone that's standing with you is part of your family, inviting them into our home. So our kids invite people into our home because we want community with you. At Stout House, 
we consider our staff uh, our family. And they call Sandy mom and, and uh, they really are people we care about, but we help them understand that now you're part of welcoming everyone into our living room, which is, which is Stout House. And, and Stomp just means that, that if you're in there, you know us. Um, and we, we want to know you as best we can. So, but you, you, should be, you should feel safe and welcome. And they do it. I have a gift for you, by the way, uh, just to thank you for being here. Um, yeah, they, they do an incredible job. Gift card to Stout House? You, have to open, you can open it now. It won't be weird at all. It feels weird. No, it's not. It's okay. great for everyone else. Okay. Gift to Starbucks. There you go. Absolutely. It's a... <laughs> It's a local mom and pop yeah, yeah. stuff. Uh, it's, yeah. um, hey, will you guys thank James? Yeah. You guys, uh, you might think, oh, okay, cool. So if I use, uh, if I open up a coffee shop now, I can start living this out. Or, or maybe if we, if we do this or that. The reality is, I love that idea of Stomtish. What where someone feels they walk into a space and they belong there. They, knew, they know where their place is. They know who's going to surround them in the table. Uh, and what if our lives could have that, that feeling, the posture of Stomtish? Wherever we go, someone belongs with us. Wherever we go, we create a sense of home and family that people can enter into. I think that's what Jesus was doing. I think that's what Jesus is doing, especially for those people who felt really far from God. So two calls for us this week. The first call is to take to heart the words of Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Before we go into this world and start doing more things, before we feel pressure to go and, and, and serve and go and to make things happen, go and figure out what it means to receive mercy. And then, from there, this week, consider, you're probably going to eat a lot this week. You're probably going to sit down and have a beverage a lot this week. Think of using one or two or three intentional times this week to consider those people who might feel disconnected, far from God, that you could welcome them to receive unexpected grace. Because perhaps Jesus still does some of his best work around the table.